Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nothing changes, nothing changes. We've just had the coronation, we've got a new king. Well, he was the old king, wasn't he? He was the king, we just sort of made him officially the king. And the queen, officially. Um, we're going to be talking about that, not as much as you were, uh, because basically it's time to move along, isn't it? Thank you very much indeed. It was all great, we had a bit of a concert, had a bit of a street party, uh, had a bit of a procession, had a bit of a, a business of doing stuff in the Abbey uh, that we haven't done for 70 years. Uh, and now it's all back to normal. So we're going to talk about uh, the problem with GPs in this country, apparently they're going to spend 240 million giving them all phones. Well, obviously it's not quite that simple, but at the end of the day, technically, that's what they say will revolutionise the system. Give them phones that work properly, and then you'll be able to make an appointment. Brilliant. Well, that's not exactly what we're looking for. Also, we'll be talking uh, about the massive numbers of people who are coming here legally, uh, which are thought to be as high as 750,000. That's right. 750,000 people coming here legally, we believe, uh, as Migration Watch is going to tell us, over the last 12 months from 21 to 22. Absolutely incredible stuff. We're going to talk to Angela Levin about Prince Harry. We're going to talk to Baroness Claire Fox about freedom of speech and much else besides. We're going to talk to Peter Hitchens, who's going to be here, talking about Penny Morden and that sword, which was quite remarkable. Uh, Also, uh, we'll be talking to Brendan O'Brien about the police uh, and about another, yet another dangerous dog attack. Simon Calder's here as well to tell us what's going on in the world of travel because there's another strike at Heathrow tomorrow. There's more train strikes coming this week as well. The strikes have come back. The coronation is over. Welcome to the real world. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. (music) 
Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, the one place to be for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's a bank holiday Monday as well, I should mention that. The streets are pretty empty. The weather is actually not that bad. It didn't rain as much this weekend as we were told it would. Saturday was a bit miserable, but yesterday was beautiful. Lots of street parties. Uh, there was one in my street. Uh, there was one in Downing Street. There were several all over the country. If you had one and you got to tell us a story about it, uh, particularly if somebody from the local council turned up and said you weren't allowed to do it, uh, that would be interesting. Because apparently tens of millions of people didn't actually apply for a street license to have a street party, partly because they would have had to fill out all sorts of ridiculous forms. I wrote a piece in the Telegraph this weekend, Telegraph Online, if you want to go and find it, about how crazy uh, the red tape is around anything that you want to do that involves local councils. We had local council elections last week, but what my point was in the Telegraph was that basically it won't change anything because the way that councils are run doesn't really matter whether it comes to Lib Dem, Labour, no overall control, Tory, Green. Basically, they're still an absolute pain to have to deal with. 0344 499 1000. Let's say a very good morning to Baroness Fox, uh, Claire Fox, unaffiliated peer director, of course, of the Academy of Ideas. Claire, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How was it for you, I think, is the question everybody's asking this morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... I- I'm a Republican, but I I watched it with uh, enthusiasm um, because you know it's an important. It's all we can ask. Historical traditional events, and yes. I watched the telly like everybody else. I mean, it was strangely eccentric, and it was strangely kind of um, fascinating in parts. Uh, my favourite bit was when they were having him touch all the things on the cushions. You know, the kind of the spurs over there, and the ring, and you know, Penny Mordaunt's sword. All of the kind of weird imagery stuff was quite funny. The rest of it, you know, you can leave it, leave it alone as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, the important thing is that it's, um, I, I, I like the music. Westminster Abbey is a fantastic place. Mm. And I'm interested in the historical details and thinking, God, that's been going on for a long time. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of it's contrived to give a sense of history that doesn't quite exist. But look, um, it was a day. And, and I'm glad that people enjoyed it. Yeah, any excuse for a party as far as I'm concerned. I, 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 yes, my, I, the street party is not quite my thing, right. like, I, I have to say. But nonetheless, I had no resentment that other people did have street parties. And I think it's actually today as a bank holiday. I mean, we've had a lot of bank holidays, haven't we? But, Too many. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a nice idea that this is a day of volunteering and pop into your neighbour and check everyone's all right. Yes. It's a kind of, you know, it's a perfectly, uh, it's sort of a rather gracious way of encouraging civil society. So, I enough. think so. I mean, I had a little a get-together in, in my little square where, where I live and people went to quite a lot of trouble to cook food and put barbecues out. It was actually very nice. And I'm, I'm not normally somebody that likes sort of fraternising with people I don't know very well. Because um, I see enough of them uh, every day here, you know. But so, but actually, I quite enjoyed it. It was quite a neighbourly thing to do. Um, I met some interesting people, and, and it was good. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the controversy has been around the demonstrations. Yes, and I do have quite strong opinions on that because, partly, I suppose, out of an interest that I sat through so many hours of my life arguing against aspects of the Public Order Bill mm. that have now been enacted. Because I was always of the opinion that the danger with the the very wide sweeping powers that the police have been given would be about anticipating a demonstration that could or might happen mm. and stopping it. And I do think that's a very 
serious challenge. Yes. No, I, I, I agree. I'm, I'm glad you have those thoughts because I knew you would have. And I, I thought you and I could have a good conversation with, about it because I was quite pleased that those particular members of the Republican movement were arrested. And, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But let's have a look at what they did do uh, and what they did actually say. Now, that particular clip, uh, Claire, is my argument against anyone who says <clears throat> they were silenced, they weren't allowed to demonstrate, because they were. They were in the Mall uh, and they were in Trafalgar Square and they were making quite a lot of noise um, and they were perfectly uh, quite, quite right to do so if they wished and I'd support their right to do that. But what I wouldn't support is their right to go too near the procession where they could have caused a problem, where they could have caused a public order um, sort of repercussion, if you like, because people might not have enjoyed what they were going to do. There was talk that they were going to try and startle horses, all of that sort of thing. And I think in those circumstances, if you look at the coronation and the, and the procession as a kind of a moment for national security to be quite well protected, you let them demonstrate somewhere else. I'm, I'm fine with that. But I, I think that the, the, the details are important here. Um, I don't, look, I'm not a great... I'm a Republican, but I'm not like a, a Republican enough that I would have gone on that demonstration, right? right? But Graham Smith, to be fair, and that organisation did all of the things. You've just talked about red tape with councils. Well, yeah. let me tell you, you want to organise a demo, red tape's got nothing on it, right? So they negotiated the deal with the police. It was agreed where they were going to go, what they were going to do. And they turned up to do what they'd agreed with the police and they were arrested. Yeah. You can't have that, right? And you were just making the point, you know, there was talk of the fact that they would. Well, you know, that suspicion is that's gossip, right? That's not evidence. Yeah, but sometimes you have to act on that because the de because the because the carrying out of such a, a thing would be more dangerous than to, to stop it from happening. But that would, but they hadn't, they'd agreed with the police what the demonstration was going to be. Yeah, but the police have and got to make, make a, um, an, an assessment, haven't they? Whether you believe what they're telling you or whether you don't, because they might say yeah, one they, thing and do something else. Yes, but on that basis, we will never have the right to demonstrate because you, in good faith, say I'm organising a demonstration, you negotiate with the mm. police and they go, yeah, but we don't believe you, mate, we're arresting you. I mean, think about... Yeah, well, you know, then in, in which, in, well, in that case, though, Claire, you have to have good faith with the demonstrators, which you know as well as I do, you can't always have. No, you can't always have, but I do think the right to demonstrate. Let's put it in, you know, we're we're thinking of it about this particular event, but this would be and could be used against any single demonstration. You know, you make an arrangement with the police, for example, to have an anti-ULES demonstration. Yeah. You arrange all of it. You've got everyone to turn up, you're opening your van, and the police go, do you know what, I think these lot are a bit dodgy and they're going to do something that they didn't tell mm. us they were going to do. And that's why some of the uh, public order bill, which is, for example, introduce suspicion-less stop and search, you know, gives wide powers to the police to speculate. And, and the, uh, as we know, my argument has always been that the police have adequate powers to deal with demonstrations, which they always have, and we have seen in relation to a lot of the Just Stop Oil demonstrations, mm. those kind of things, they haven't intervened. So in this instance, I thought it was inappropriate to arrest those people. By the way, that I heard you know, somebody in a previous conversation saying, and they were going to let off rape alarms, and, and that could have led to the horses. Well, yeah. a different story that was going on was that the, the night safety volunteers 
who actually do have rape alarms were actually a, a voluntary group, and today's a day of volunteering, yeah. who are there to help women if there should be any fears, you know, in a big crowded situation yeah. like that. And they were arrested and put inside for 14 hours yeah. or something. Uh, so, I, look, I think civil liberties are very important, as it happens. I think that there's nothing to be uh, gained by creating. I mean, Republic have got far more publicity this way than they yeah. ever would have done. And also, let's, <laughs> but let's also not forget that they did have a massive demo. You know, you're talking as if they weren't allowed to well, do anything. Organize, look, I still think if I was organising, let me tell you, if I was organising a demonstration, it might not have been this demonstration, and I turned up with the van and the placards and all the rest of it, mm. and we were carted off to the police station and arrested. In this country, we just don't do that. We're not meant to do that. No, I understand we're that. Believe but, but we're also right. we're also we're also entering a new era of demonstrations, aren't we? You know, demonstrations when you and I were younger used to involve carrying banners, you know, locking arms and walking down streets. It didn't involve gluing yourself to stuff, you know, but letting down. Hang on, letting no, down, letting down people's tyres, spray painting people's private cars. There all was of that. no reason they didn't know any of this was going to happen. That what they've said is they could have done all of those things. Well, we all could have done yes, anything. Yes, but you right? can't just wait for it to happen always can you i mean I that's know, like saying he, that's like saying you shouldn't arrest a terrorist till he's blown something up i'm sorry but i think that this well first of all they have to have intelligence about whether somebody with an active terrorist record mm. um is about to do something and therefore to say that demonstrators are on a par with terrorists is partly where I get worried. Yeah, but the point is, we've got to live in the real world, though, Claire. We've got to live in the what? real world. They were able, to, they were allowed to have a demonstration. Nobody stopped them from having a demonstration. The organisers clearly... of the demonstration were arrested. Yes, in prison. they were. Yes, because they were unloading a load of. Maybe they were unloading a load of PA uh, equipment, which they say they were unloading, which would have made, uh, which which might have been designed to disrupt the procession which might have been designed, and don't forget, this is a once-in-a-lifetime situation, this, this particular yeah. uh, parade, this particular you know, coronation. There isn't going to be another one probably as, as long as you and I are alive. There might be, but the point is, is that it's a, it's a one-off situation. And I think I to suggest that this is somehow setting a precedent, I don't think it is. It's a one-off situation. God, if an organisation called Republic can't organise a demonstration, which they negotiated with the police, by the way, all the parameters... Well, that's what on. they say. That's what they say. I, I don't no, necessarily... I don't, think the police, I don't think the police have denied no, that. The, no, 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 but, no, but Claire, but Claire, we don't know what they negotiated with the police, do we? No, we so don't. So maybe they didn't negotiate that bit. The police, as it happens, have not justified... They basically simply say, we've got the powers and we made a judgment. I'm saying to you, look, this one-off day... Imagine you're a republic, right? Coronations don't come along very often. Yeah. If they can't demonstrate on the day of the coronation, God, what's the point of them, right? Yeah, but they did demonstrate. That's my point. You know, to say yeah, that they didn't they, demonstrate there, is nonsense. There were people who had placards, but they had an organised demonstration. Yeah, but I, they, they were all there. They all demonstrated. I am, they weren't all there because a lot of them were in prison. Well, half a dozen of them were in prison. Good. I, I am indicating to the organisers, you know, that's quite important. I am indicating that I think that we should be concerned about yeah. the civil liberties breach when the police 
use the new powers that they have mm. in a way that I think can be dangerous. No, to you're all absolutely right. You're absolutely right to say that. And there will be, I'm sure, and I think today it's going to happen, uh, an investigation into what the police did, why they did what they did uh, and what their justification is. And I would welcome that. But I would still rather that than have something terrible happen uh, which would make this country look terrible in the eyes of the world while the, dem while the, while the demo was on. You know, they were perfectly capable of, of making lots and lots of noise, which they were then uh, uh, able to do up and down uh, the mall and up and up and down Whitehall and in Trafalgar Square. But listen, we've got to take a break. We'll come back. Uh, this is good. Uh, I'm enjoying it. This is Talk TV. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through, of course, until one o'clock. It's bank holiday Monday, but uh, if you're not working, uh, enjoy the day. Uh, but don't forget, you do nothing to help the economy. So get back to work, do something useful. Um, Claire Fox is here. She's working. I'm working. Uh, we're having a good argument about free speech. Quite a lot of people split on this, Claire, because many people are with oh, you Claire. saying, uh, many people say with, uh, staying with you and saying, yeah, you can't just keep arresting people for something that they might do. I just think, you know, yes, of course, generally speaking, you're right. And yes, of course, generally speaking, that should always be the case. And the police should be very careful about how they conduct themselves. But I just think in this case, you know, particularly the one thing we haven't really spoken about is if there was to be a big contingent of Republic demos somewhere near where all the royal supporters were, it might have kicked off into something not very good. So they've, they've got to take that into account as well. And the police are in a kind of no-win situation here, because if they'd allowed something like that to happen, and it had all kicked off, and it had all become a real nightmare, and horses had bolted, and, you know, cordons had been broken, and they ended up with people fighting each other, we'd be sitting here this morning going, why didn't the police stop the demonstration? Well, there's a lot of what-ifs there, Mike. Um, well, the world now, is full I'm, of what-ifs, isn't it? You know, it's always it's a, a what-if. I know, but, uh, you know, maybe we can talk about some of the what-ifs that are coming up in relation to the online safety bill. Yes. Because let me tell you, every time I raise any problems in the House of Lords at the moment about the online safety bill, what people say is, yeah, but what if this happened? Mm. What if that happened? What if this happened? And all I can tell you is what-ifs are the basis on which they erode our rights. And that's what worries me. I appreciate the worst can always happen. And on the basis of kind of fears of the worst and a kind of safetyism culture that says, no, we've got to absolutely ensure that nothing bad ever happens. Suddenly you find you haven't got the right to, I don't know, send a WhatsApp message privately. All right. Because what okay. If well, let me ask you a question. Awful. Let me ask you a question about still staying with demonstrations. These people that go around letting down people's tyres, the tyre extinguishers, as they call themselves, yeah. doing criminal damage to cars by sticking a lentil inside the valve, allowing the car tyre to, to, to go down to such an extent that the wheel probably gets damaged. Now, in my view, those people should be stopped from doing that before they do it, not arrested after they've done it. Yeah. And if you know that's what they're about to do, that's what you should do. But if you consider... Look, in every single instance, right, um, I I think, by the way, that a lot of particularly the Just Stop Oil people and the Extinction Rebellion uh, demos we've seen, they have in conducted criminal damage. They've walked up with their glue about to do something and the police should deal with them harshly, quickly, efficiently. We haven't seen that, have we, as it happens. And so I'm not opposed to that. And by the way, that's not just because I... Well, don't we did see it in Merseyside when, when those uh, wallies went up and demonstrated against the Grand National. The Merseyside yeah. police didn't seem to have any problem exactly. dealing with them. And that's the way it should be dealt with. That's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. But you can't kind of then have a situation where you go, 
I'm not going to let anyone in who looks a bit dodgy to the uh, Grand National in case they're the type of person who might be about to do this, right? That's where we're going. But look, genuinely, if we can kind of broaden it out, because um, I know one of the big stories at the moment, and it is an important story, is actually that people like WhatsApp and uh, Signal, all of these different encryption services, for example, are threatening to pull out of the UK. Right. The reason they're threatening to pull out of the UK is that, and I think this is fascinating, we all use private messaging services. Well, I said a lot, I'm dependent on them. And you do so on the basis that they're private messages. Now, of course, somebody might take screenshots of your messages Mm. and somebody might decide they want to write a book and hand their whole WhatsApp, you know, messages over to a journalist recently. But a, a company like WhatsApp or Signal, they can't read our messages, right? They encrypt them. Even they, as the big tech corporates, do not read our messages. The government are trying to bring in a situation whereby all of our messages will be screened. And as a consequence of which, they will breach encryption. Well, they as, as, they, well as they're being written, you, as it were. Yeah, well, they're basically saying screen them, which basically they're saying to the companies, we will hold you responsible if anyone in a private message sends, for example, some gross image. It might well be pornography. It mm. could be county lines, gangs organising something, right? Yeah. So they want mass screening. The the encryption companies like WhatsApp have basically said, well, and, and to use a phrase that Matthew Lesh uh, uh, wrote in the, um, uh, uh, the Spectator, so I don't want to take claim from it. Yeah. That's like saying you're half pregnant. Yeah. You're either got encrypted private messages or you haven't. Yeah. The argument is, yes, Claire, it's all very well you banging on about privacy and the state not having the right to read the messages. But what if, what if, Mike, what if those messages contain people planning terrible things? Mm. Of course, that's the basis on which our rights go. Because, you know, it is the case that, for example, if you were talking about child protection, which is one of the arguments that are used, it is the case that if you went that far, you would say that most child uh, offences against children happen in the home. Mm. But we do not think that the state has the right to have CCTV in every single home and bedroom on the basis of what if. If you receive intelligence, you should be diligent. You should be ensuring that you go and you do everything possible to protect the child. But we do also live in a free society in which we do not organise everything around the possibility Mm. of the worst-case scenario. And there is a serious problem here because the whole of the online safety bill, which is really draconian and censorious, not just in terms of privacy, but in terms of what they are empowering big tech to remove. And by the way, when I say empowering them, they're telling them if they don't remove certain content, and, you know, goodness knows you and I in this argument could fall under that content in many instances. They will not only be fined enormously, but they've just introduced new um, uh, amendments from the government that says that senior managers should be put in prison. Mm. Now, what that's going to lead to is a risk-averse atmosphere in tech companies who will remove rather than possibly face criminal sanction And it's all on the basis of, but what if the information is misinformation, disinformation, lies, 
hate speech yeah. and you know how broad that is right. harmful so they said that they'd get rid of legal but harmful clauses from the bill but actually they have introduced harmful as a basis on which content should be removed if the terms and conditions of big tech say that's harmful we won't yeah. have it well <laughs> i suppose as well it comes down to what they're going to do doesn't it with whatever they whatever they make the the, the social media companies do because for example at the moment my understanding of the law is if you're a police officer and you're involved in an investigation and you want to tap somebody's phone you apply to a judge to get a court order to do that and that's as it should be right similarly they should they should do the same thing presumably with whatsapp shouldn't they they should well, say right we think these guys are drug dealers if you want to arrest them for drug dealing and they're sending whatsapp messages then we need to get a court order to investigate those particular people but not everyone yeah. they can't breach the encryption that's the point because it's a method of of you know you can't you can't kind of go well we're breaching encryption for them what you can do is say we've got a suspicion that these people are using private messaging to organize drug dealing right will arrest them and take the phone and then you've got the phone and you right. can look at their whatsapp messages that's right. what i'm saying it's, okay. that's different or indeed if somebody gets sent a hateful vile whatsapp message yeah. you can go to both whatsapp and the police and say look at this yeah personally sent to me but encryption is a method i mean technically i'm not saying i understand but where it's completely secure yes, yes. and it, it, it's important it's secure because i mean everybody from civil liberties organizers, you know, Ukrainian dissidents messaging, you know, people in Hong Kong messaging through to, I just want to have a private chat mm. with my mate. Yeah. These are important liberties that we fought for for a very long time. Yeah. But in the name of what if, and think of the, uh, the children or think of the possible consequences, they are eroding yes. their freedom. No, listen, I agree with you. So we've ended on a note of agreement. All, all I can say is, Claire, it's just as well these things only come around every 70 years. <laughs> That's the only time we have a row. But thank you very much indeed. Have a good one. Uh, Claire Fox, the Baroness, uh, unaffiliated peer, director of the Academy of Ideas. Totally agree with her on that business with the encryption of WhatsApp messages. But I don't agree on absolutely everything uh, being allowed to happen before you stop it from happening. Sometimes you have to stop things from happening. Sometimes, not always, we'll take your calls, 0344 499 1000. Coming up, Angela Levin and the Coronation. Nationwide, by your side, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. With you all the way through bank holiday, of course. We never stop working. Some people don't work on bank holidays, but I do. I quite like working on bank holidays. So I'm here with you until one o'clock. Kevin O'Sullivan uh, sitting in for Ian Collins, uh, who's not working today. That doesn't mean he's a bad guy. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, lots more to do for us, though. And right now, we're going to talk briefly about the weekend, because a lot of people are sick to death now of the whole uh, coverage of the Royals, but all the papers absolutely full. Uh, lots of the uh, headlines of them this morning. Pa, we are so proud of you. Uh, those were the words of Prince William, of course, last night. Uh, a big concert that went on, the first sort of seven to ten pages in most newspapers. And in fact, you've got to go all the way, even in the Daily Mail, which you'd have to say is um, pretty much on Harry's case quite a lot of the time. You have to go all the way back to page 12 and 13 to even find any mention of Prince Harry. So let's talk to Angela Levin, our favourite royal correspondent, to find out what she made of it all. Um, Angela, very good morning to you. Good morning. You must be I'm pretty... someone who likes to work all the time too, <laughs> so don't worry. Well, listen, if you're not working on the one, the one weekend when there's a coronation, I think there's going to be something wrong with you. But, but how, <laughs> did, how, how did you like it? How did, what was, what's your sort of overall thinking about it all? Well, yes... 
Not yesterday, day before yesterday, when all the ceremony was going on. I mean, I was in a little tent, mm. um, getting terribly wet and awful weather. Yeah. And I just was completely absorbed by it. I yeah. just adored it. I couldn't be taken away. Mm. I mean, it was just um, so moving and so um, carefully done that nobody would be upset. Mm. I, I just thought it was brilliant. And also you can see with the close-ups what King Charles was really feeling. Yes. I thought to myself it was a mixture of anxiety and emotion and um, panic sort of feeling about will it all go okay. Yes. And that's much more interesting than, say, you know, when Queen Elizabeth got married and we were all distanced from her mm. and you could only see it almost like you're watching television from the other side of the room. But this, you could really feel everybody's emotions Yes, and there were certainly points at which um, Charles himself, the king, looked pretty emotional, particularly that moment where William sort of leaned forward during the coronation to give him a kiss on the cheek. Yes, and, you know, thank you, William, he's alleged to have said. And you think, poor man, he's gone through so much with his other son who he loves. Yes. Um, Thank goodness that William and he now are close and support each other. Exactly right. And I did say at the weekend, we did a show myself and Kevin O'Sullivan on Saturday, and um, I, th- I did say at the time, you wonder what was going through Harry's mind as he watched um, uh, his yeah. other his brother actually kissing his father. Yes. I, as I've known him quite well, I could sort of slightly analyse what I think he was thinking, and that he was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Mm. He's got to please Megan. Um, he looked so lonely when walking through, the only person who was by himself. All his cousins had partners. There he was alone. Um, a spare, short, short, certainly mm. um, walking down. And I, I, he, he t- kept looking down when they said, God save the queen, king. And also when uh, William kissed his father. I think there must be a few genes left in him that align him with the royal family after he, all he had it till his mid-30s. Um, and I think he, he didn't know what to do with himself, really. Yeah. Nobody really wanted to talk to him. He um, didn't make an effort to look and watch and smile. He said a first line of God's save of the national anthem, but then not. So he sort of distanced himself while he was there. What a terrible situation to be in. Mm, absolutely, because he couldn't not come. She obviously didn't want to come because she knew that if she did come with him, that really wouldn't be, uh, she wouldn't be the star of the show. And she doesn't like not being the star of the show. Um, and instead, oh, we got think... rather odd sort of um, tweet that went out saying that um, he was wearing Dior. And I suddenly thought... I wonder if he's being paid for that. Yeah, it sounds like it. I Mm. mean, I thought it was a ridiculous thing. Who cares? Yeah, right. I don't care who made his morning suit. Yes, exactly. But I think, actually, if Megan had been there, she would have been in her element because she'd have met all these delightful kings and queens from all around the Mm. world. She would be with lots of show business people. Ideal to get contacts that she can phone up and pretend they're friends and get jobs. Yeah. Very interesting, actually. But... My real pain about it was that she didn't feel that she would give an inch 
to the coronation. And yeah. that's why Harry had to rush back. He got home about eight o'clock in the evening. Right. No four-year-old has a party at that time. No. It was very easy if he'd had a party the next day. But you see with Meghan, she has to win and she doesn't like giving in. And so he had to dash off. He didn't have time to say congratulations to his family. He didn't have time to go and have lunch with them. The palace made a very clear statement that it invited him to have um, lunch mm. at Buckingham Palace. But, um, you know, they didn't really know whether he'd answered yes or no, but he dashed off mm. and zoomed off. Very unhealthy to go back and forth so many thousands of miles in a day. It doesn't do you... Yeah, I was reading a piece by Celia Walden the other day in The Telegraph and she was saying that, you know, she does that flight quite a lot backwards and forwards to LA and it's quite I mean I, I I mostly go to the east coast so it's not quite as long but it does take it out of you a long flight like that. Yes I mean it dehydrates you and it's very odd for your body to be up so high but you know he obviously was under um, orders that he had to come home yeah. and I think that None when of you that enjoying it, yourself with your family nonsense No 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 he can't enjoy <laughs> it he's got to reject it and yes. I think there must have been so many were there and pulling, pulling at his heartstrings, you know, was there that? Does he really hate them? I don't believe he does. I just think he's a very lost man and, and remains yeah. very lost. No, I think, I think she's kind of made him think that he hates them. I think that's the, the, the truth of it. Let's yeah. have a look at, at William from last night. Um, he was speaking, of course, at the, uh, at the royal concert, the, the coronation concert. My grandmother said when she was crowned, Coronations are a declaration of our hopes for the future. And I know she's up there fondly keeping an eye on us, and she'll be a very proud mother. Pa, we are all so proud of you. And I also want to express my pride and gratitude for the millions of people who serve in the forces, in classrooms, hospital wards, and local communities. He's getting quite good at that, isn't he, Angela? It was very carefully thought through, yeah. I, I thought. And, um, you know, he seems more relaxed now to talk. He's sort of more chatting than actually giving a speech. Yes. I think um, King Charles a tear would have come to his eye too to say, you know, how much we think of you mm. now. What an effort to get at least one child who really supports Yeah, him. and I but think as a, as, a, as a spectacle, it was very well handled. It was very well organised. Like everything mm. that involves the military and the royal family, they seem to just be able to get it right, don't they? Yes, they do get it right. They had the right sort of different sorts of colours and the different type of music and ballet and... Uh, classical music and modern music and actually to see them all stand up towards the end and dance in the balcony was I think extraordinary never seen that before right. so, um, they obviously had a very good time some people complain that Camilla kept looking at her watch mm. but it seems actually that it's a special watch that moves according to whatever music's going on so that you can oh really right People said, oh, she was obviously very tired and wanted to go to bed. I think she was fascinated by her. <laughs> but Charlotte, Queen Princess Charlotte had the same watch and she kept looking at it. She kept giving it to her mother to sort it out for her. Right. So um, I think everybody who came had a, a very special watch. I, I wish I'd had one. Maybe it was part of a royal goodie bag that they all got from leaving the Abbey <laughs> or something like that, you know, and they give you something special. Presents. Yeah, exactly right. And also, <laughs> I quite enjoyed watching Camilla's sort of... Um, mood if you like when she was inside the abbey because she she at times looked to me once she was wearing the crown which looks a bit precariously sort of um uh, 
put on her head at, at times that she seemed to have a little smirk kind of playing across her lips, almost like she I was sort of catching somebody's eye um, and, and, and really quite enjoying it all. Yeah, I, I don't think it was a smirk. I think it was a sort of very nervous half-smile. Yes. Um, Crown had to be altered because she's got quite a large head. Right. And um, I think it was very, very uncomfortable for her. Mm. She, like Charles, has a bad back. And I think both of them, it was so heavy. Their back hurt. Yeah. And had this enormous sort of background that mm. had to pulled along. Okay. Um, and I think that uh, it was actually terrifying. They didn't look at each other. Charles and Camilla didn't look at each right. other very much. And I thought that was probably because if they did, they might have burst out into tears. Right. It was too stressful. Yes. You could see they both found it an amazing, moving, uh, powerful yeah. experience. Oh, I think so. And so what changes now then? Because, you know, he was the king, but, but now he's sort of officially the king, as it were. She's now yes. the queen. Does it change their relationship with, with the country? Does it change their relationship with each other? No, it won't change their relationship with each other. I think that um, now that it's all signed and sealed, that King Charles can start making all the changes he wanted to do. Mm. Uh, he couldn't do that really before. He didn't want to do that before out of respect to his mother and also that you never know what might happen in Parliament that overrides everything. So now he's got the kingship and he can now make a lot of changes. We saw lots of changes during the coronation. Um, you know, women, uh, religious leaders, and uh, opening it up to all faiths and having children there instead of peers who would bow and had their crowns on. Um, no crowns apart from the king and the queen. So it's sort of modernizing. And Prince Philip always used to say the way the royal family should modernize mm. is to do things so gently and quietly that nobody really notices until it's really done. Yeah. And I think that that's what happened. And I think that I don't think we'd have had the dancing by any other um, royal couple. And also that, you know, you can start making the changes. And I think he'll be modernizing in all sorts of ways. Mm. He, he wants to be a man of the people. He wants to talk to the people. And William said, too, it's all about service. And of course, King Charles said the same thing. He wants to serve. He doesn't want to be served. He wants to look after and care for all of us. And um, the, in the coronation, in, in the um, in, abroad and at home. Mm. Um, and I think he will make a very good king. And with the support of Camilla, who won't think that things are 50-50, she's there to support him and help him and actually give an idea of what a normal life is like, which she um, had experience of for, you know, 50 odd years. Mm. Whereas him and also um, William uh, haven't ever had. And it's very helpful to have a wife who understands more the public from, you know, um, the things that they have to do. Yes, indeed. Lovely to talk to you, Angela. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, you can probably take a couple of days off now. Uh, for this week. Uh, Angela Levin, Royal Biographer, uh, on the news of uh, all the papers have got this morning, uh, something like 15 pages, they've got supplements, they've got all manner of things. We'll talk about it, I'm sure, over the course of the week. Um, but for us, the Royal Weekend has kind of come to an end. We're now going to talk about the things that matter to you uh, as well, which are, of course, the fact that there's some more strikes coming tomorrow uh, at the airport, there's some more rail strikes coming at the end of the week. Simon Cool is going to join us. We're going to talk a bit about the BBC and why that uh, is in a terrible place after some of the things that happened over the course of the weekend. Peter Hitchens, of course, as well, will be here very 
shortly uh, to talk about Penny Morden and that sword. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Throughout the course of the night, uh, Jeremy Carl show at seven, of course, Vanessa Feltz at four, uh, Piers Morgan at eight, the talk at nine. All manner of good things happening. Uh, and we'll be all over the stories that are developing over the course of the next few hours, of course, as well. Simon Calder is going to be here uh, telling us about what the latest strike action is on the travel front, because I think tomorrow uh, it kicks off at Heathrow Terminal 5. Uh, there's going to be go slows and all sorts of things. There's going to be train strikes affecting Eurovision, which happens at the end of this week. Right now, though, uh, we're going to be speaking to... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Brendan O'Brien, founder of the Blue Light Police Recruitment Consultancy. A um, couple of stories to touch upon with him, including um, 2,000 would-be police officers uh, recruited to boost numbers left uh, during probation. Um, Brendan, very good morning to you. Yes, good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, we've heard recently that um, the, the, the Tory party, the government have said we've now got the 20,000 that we needed to get to bump up the uh, the numbers to where they were before the 20,000 left. What's this story about? Yeah, so the story is that uh, 2,000 police officers during the uplift, which was a three-year um, uh, programme to recruit, and uh, I say additional, in inverted commas, an additional 20,000 officers as you say, to replace the ones that were lost in the first place during yeah. austerity. And about 2,000 of them have left. Um, quite frankly, I, I just don't think it's news at all. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would expect those sudden numbers to leave uh, during their probation student officer time. I don't think those numbers, and um, I've certainly looked at the data. I've not got the data in front of me, but I looked at it the other day. And it's not unusual. It's about where it should be, actually. It's a sort of 10% dropout rate, I suppose, is what you would expect, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, for some people, it's not the job for them. Um, or they may find that the, the pressure of being a police officer is too much for them, or they just don't like a particular part of it, or they get offered something that pays higher elsewhere. You know, there's going to be a load of different factors that, that go into that sort of 10% dropout rate. And actually, when you think about it, though, it, it might not be, it, it, it depends on what that data is telling us, whether it's 
2,000 out of that 20,000 or 2,000 out of the over 45,000 that have been recruited over the past three years. If it's 2,000 out of the over 45,000, because remember, they've been continuing to recruit anyway, about 8,000 every year, then that's actually good news for the police service. That's a good story. That's right. good retention. Yes. Uh, so when we hear people... Well, when we hear people like the chief of the Metropolitan Police saying, you know, it's been really difficult to retain people in the police force, it's very difficult, morale is very low, that's not entirely true then. Um, no, I, well, I, I think there's, there are more leaving, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's in single figures. I think there's more leaving than normally you would expect over the past sort of 10 years. But mm. look, let's take a look at police pay. You know, pay for police officers. Uh, if you joined the police about 10 years ago, you got paid about £23,000 a year as a starting salary. Right. If you join the police, I'm, I'm talking outside of the metropolitan area now, um, but if you join the police, say, in Derbyshire um, 10 years ago, about £23,000, you join the police in Derbyshire now, you get about £23,000. hasn't gone up. It's just not gone up. So, you know, £23,000 10 years ago might have been quite a respectable starting salary, mm. but... Now, so it's three thousand. Yeah. Look, quite quickly, I could go and stack shelves in the supermarket and get paid the same. Yeah, I mean, people say that. I don't. I don't. Know if that, I don't know how true that is, but certainly, um, I suppose the government's answer to that would be, well, where are we supposed to find the money from? Well, you know, at some point, um, at some point, they're going to have to find the money because we've seen this play out in other public sector organisations, mm. haven't we? That you know, you just can't keep underpaying people who are going out and risking their lives yeah. on a daily basis. Yes. Well, I find it ironic, by the way, as well. I find it rather ironic, Brenda, that we're paying more tax than we've ever paid and the government doesn't seem to have any money. And they keep saying they haven't got enough money and they can't do things because they haven't got enough money. Well, they can't keep taxing us the amount they're taxing us. They must be wasting it somewhere. There's, there's always money. It's how you carve it up. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's it's what, you, what you deem to be a priority. And I think we've got to a point with the police service now where I've heard, you know, that the, the chair of the West Midlands Police um, Police Federation is talking about we need to ballot our members to right. decide that they should have the right to take strike action. So, you know, that's that's pretty, pretty. Um, that's all we need. It, you know, it's pretty interesting talk that, you know, you've got police officers talking about strike action because there's no other way they can influence their, their salaries, that the, the money they're going to get paid. And people, let's face it, people don't join the job. People don't join the police to be rich. Mm. Don't join the police for the money. You know, I joined the police all those years ago because I thought it'd be a fascinating career mm. and I thought it would, it would give me the opportunity to serve and have something to be proud of. And it gave me all of those things. Yeah. I was always comfortable. I was always comfortable. I was never rich. But now we've got officers who are poor. And that can't but be But it's right also always been sold as a, as a public sector job where you'd get a reasonable pension and you'd get a reasonable ability to retire a little bit early. So, I mean, I used to know lots of police officers when I was younger and many of them said, you know, the reason I got into it is because I'm going to be leaving in my 40s and I'll go off and do something else, but I'll be able to get a pension from a much earlier age because it's that mm -hmm. kind of job. And that's a good thing, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, the, the pension age has uh, increased now, which, you know, you're expected to retire between 55 and 60 as opposed to yeah. 50. But that's still earlier than most places. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, but let's not forget, you know, it, it's it's not a gold-plated pension. You do pay into it. I think mm. at the moment, every police officer pays in 14% of their salary right. into their pension. And, do you know, quite frankly, you know, I've retired now from the police. I deserve it. You know, I put my life on the line. Oh, I'm not number. suggesting you don't. But what I'm saying is, is that the, 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 the kind of the, the, the equation, if you like, on, on pay was that you might not get as much as you would get in another job, but you would get a much better benefit package. 
Yeah, and also that you would, you know, I always knew right from the get-go when I was 21 that I'd be comfortable as a police officer. Never itch, but comfortable. But now we've got officers who are poor. Yeah. We've got officers who are... We've got food banks and police stations. You know, how can that be a thing? <laughs> Food yeah, banks. well, I mean, that's another story altogether. I'm always suspicious of uh, food banks. If you start a food bank and start giving people away free stuff, they're going to they're gonna take it, aren't they? That's the thing. Well, absolutely, but there's got to be a need for it in the first place. Yeah, maybe. Um, let's talk about what else was going on this weekend, because obviously the coronation was the overall overarching story. But there's been four uh, deaths, people stabbed to death. And I mean, while there was a lot of police parading around in London, Presumably, there was also an awful lot of police doing some very hard work up and down the country, um, f- fighting what is an increasingly violent society. Yeah, absolutely tragic. And I feel as though at times this is becoming like the background noise, and it shouldn't do. Um, young men being murdered and young men murdering each other should always be on the agenda. You know, th- this plague of violent mm. crime is is a tragedy. It's tragic. And I think there, there can be lots done about it but it needs a very very long-term approach to this and one that i'm not seeing you know we really do need to see an investment in communities and that can, it might sound a little bit um let's all sit around the tree and give it a hug no it's nothing to do with that this is about investing in communities so that young people have got role models mm. in their community role models aren't drug dealers role models aren't well the people. trouble is the role models that they've got are drug dealers and all the investment in the community is drug money well, look, there's, there's, uh, I've got experience of this when I was a police officer. There's two things we did. Uh, we took on the organised criminality and with, with every legal and ethical overwhelming force that we possibly could, and it worked, mm. we took them on and we destroyed and dismantled the organised criminality and their networks. But at the same time, we invested as a, as a partnership with the council and housing associations we invested in building that community where the organised criminality thrived. Because when they go, it leaves a vacuum, and the vacuum would just get filled with more organised criminality if you let that happen. Or you can take that long game and enable that community to grow and thrive and flourish, and for the young people in that community to join the football team, the cheerleading squad, do something more productive, have role models in the community, not role models who are the drug dealers. Yeah. And it's tough. You know, this is... You know, taking on the organised criminality was easy. That's that's easy. It really is. Enabling strong and cohesive communities is the toughest policing I ever did. Yeah, I bet it's true. Uh, listen, good to talk to you, Brendan. Thank you very much indeed. Brendan O'Brien, founder of the Blue Light Police Recruitment, uh, saying that uh, not a story, really, that 2,000 people who wanted to be cops have now decided they don't want to be cops. I mean, that seems to be the way of things now. Like people who've said they've signed up to be nurses and then discovered actually it's not a very pleasant job, strangely. Uh, here's one from uh, somebody who doesn't give a name. I work as a receptionist for a GP's practice, and the GPs and their PAs, so-called managers, spend so much time finding people to do their jobs, they could see a few dozen extra patients it's an absolute joke now they want us to decide who should see who so they have someone to throw under a bus when it all goes wrong uh, please don't say my name as they are just waiting for a reason to sack me i've been in the job for 18 years and witnessed the decline well that's terrible news isn't it uh, glad peter hitchens got seen uh, says terry in birmingham we've had to go and see the nurse over the recent past names of doctors on the wall but not one person in a waiting room with 15 seats three times this has happened where are they patients or doctors there isn't one in sight well, we'll talk a bit more about the NHS and what it is they're supposedly going to do with this new phone system. 240 million quid they're going to spend, supposedly, to make it easier for you to get an actual appointment with a GP. This is Talk TV. Online, on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's Bank Holiday Monday. We are here, of course, all the time because we don't take holidays at uh, the Independent Republic. No. Well, we do sometimes, but not very often. And certainly not on bank holidays, not when everybody else takes them because what's the point? Kevin O'Sullivan's going to be here at one o'clock. He's taking over from Ian Collins today, so he'll tell us what's going on with him. Uh, we're going to speak to Neil Garrett, uh, who's the new leader of the Tory party in City Hall here in London. We've got plenty to say about Sadiq Khan, plenty to say about you, Les. And I was listening over the weekend to a lot of you who were calling in from all sorts of parts of Britain, from Glasgow, from Leeds, from uh, Birmingham, from Bristol, from Oxford, uh, and even uh, from Bath as well, and places where uh, there is already going to be uh, an ultra low emission zone imposed upon you without really any uh, whys or wherefores to the actual population. Nobody really wants these things. People are saying it's going to make their lives difficult, it's going to make their lives more expensive, it's going to shut down businesses. All of that is happening and it started happening in London under Sadiq Khan and of course uh, I said this will come to you in time and that's what's turned out to be the case. Now I'm delighted to say Neil Garrett's here with us. Uh, Neil, very good uh, afternoon to you, welcome. Good afternoon Mike, it's great to be here. Great to have you. Susan Hall of course, an old friend of the show, um, has been with us for many, many times over the course of the last few years. She's now no longer the leader, but she was a great leader and I have a great time for, for Susan. I'm sure we'll, 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 have her, we'll have her on again. But you're now in charge of the, uh, the opposition, I suppose you might call it, in, uh, in City Hall. So you've That's got it. quite a fight on your hands with Sadiq Khan. I think we have. I think we have. So Ulez, we might come on to Ulez. I think that might We come will on. do, yeah, absolutely. I think Ulez is a mixed blessing, actually, for us in London. So mm. on the one hand, it's a demonstration of how Sadiq Khan is completely out of touch with mm. London, particularly outer Londoners. But in actual fact, he is a sort of full spectrum failure across the board. Everything he touches is mm. going badly. Um, and so in a strange way, so much focus on Ulez means he gets away with not having to explain why there's problems with the police that he's right. hardly got to grips with, why there's problems in you know, London's nightlife. We're constantly yes. criticised. Uh, you know, why, is, why is everything closed down? It right. closed down in the pandemic, hasn't reopened. Mm. Um, you've got uh, housing, where the government gave him a huge amount of money, which he's just hardly spending. Right. Across the board, he's failing. And crime, of course, as well. I, mean, I was just talking yes. to, to another guest earlier in the last hour. Three stabbings, fatal stabbings over the weekend in London alone. Um, and it's just not getting any better, is it? I think... <sighs> So the new Met Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, mm. I have got a lot of time for. I think he is starting to get to grips with a lot of these problems. I think the frustration for me is I see Sadiq Khan saying, you know, he became mayor with a plan to sort out the Met Police. And he's now entering his eighth mm. year and he's right. just starting to get to grips. Um, so I'm, I'm cautious. And all of the, on all of the criticism about the Met Police and, and, and the bad things that were going on inside of it, you know, he's been here for an awful lot of that. And he is in, 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 in sort of final analysis. He's the guy in charge of it. It's not, it's not obvious what he's done mm. for, throughout that whole period. In fact, he tried to, you know, his, what he's saying now is it was all Cressida Dick's fault. He got rid of her. Yeah. He argued that her term should be extended. Right. So he's, he's, he's all over the place. I think it's the, his, his approach to everything is get a press release, get himself on telly, get yeah. himself in the press and then move on to the next thing. Every and, single. And rather like a certain um, former first minister north of the border, He's kind of made the job all about him, hasn't he? Nicola Sturgeon did that in Scotland when she sort of was the SNP. And everyone thought, blimey, what will happen when she goes? And then when she did go, it was kind of left as a barren sort of empty husk. And now they've got which is stuck with uh, Humza useless. It doesn't seem to know uh, which end is up. Same with Sadiq Khan. I mean, you get the sense that he runs the City Hall like a bit of a sort of a feudal organisation. And, that you know, you're either in with him or he doesn't talk to anybody. 
Well, he does. I mean, he has a sort of one-man argument against city mayors, actually. I, I quite like the idea of city mayors, mm. uh, which is partly why I got involved in this job, because right. I think it's an important idea. But right. he is a one-man argument against it. What's it. I mean, what's really interesting, though, is that even on things that you would think he'd be strong on, mm. he just has no interest. I mean, he has this right. whole thing about solar panels, a subsidised you know, group buying of yeah. solar panels idea. He set it up, set out a press release, moved on. All of the assembly members now got mailbags full of, full of people who paid a load of money yeah. and there's nobody turning up. And he's just... He signed oh, really? this thing. He's handed it over to mm. this company. He has no control. So they're putting out press releases about yeah. what they're doing, but they've got no control. Effectively, yes. he's just uh, effectively done a PR job, and now this company is running it, and they're running it badly. And So even on the things that you would think would be the things he'd care about yeah. and would be focused on, he's just not focused on any of them. He's focused on himself, promoting his book, promoting himself, yeah. promoting whatever his next career move is, not promoting London. And, and anything to do with sort of net zero and green issues, he's all over it, right? Crime, he kind of doesn't seem to be doing much at all. Um, there are lots of places now in London where um, shops, if you have a shop, you're probably going to hire some kind of guard to stop people running in and running out and just stealing stuff because there's just not enough police to go around. Um, and some of the stuff he's been coming out with lately has been quite frankly bonkers. You know, when he came out, I think it was last week or the week before, to say that actually in addition to the, uh, improving the air quality by, by introducing you to ULES law, it will in, include, uh, it will improve the sperm count of people living in London. You're going, sorry, there's literally no evidence. And there's a, there's a, there's, I know there's a, there's a legal challenge at the moment going through the courts. There's no evidence for any of his stuff no. about air quality, is there? Well, no. Well, one of the things that's been, I think, most fascinating for me over the last couple of years that I've been an Assembly member mm. is, we started on ULES, we start pressing. We start. We go digging on his various claims, and you find there's nothing there. Mm. So um, Jacob, he commissioned when the U.S. London-wide consultation was proposed, did this huge piece of work for an independent uh, engineering firm called Jacobs, mm-hmm. and what they concluded was that it would make no difference to particulate emissions in outer London or particulate uh, pollution levels in outer London. A barely measurable difference to nitrogen dioxide. No mm. difference to car- um, carbon emissions and no. climate change. And none of this information ever really found the no. light of day. I challenged Shadiq on it last July, mm. and he used his favourite phrase of don't recognise the figures. You know, he pretends poorer Londoners don't own cars. Yeah. It's rubbish. It's obvious right. that they do. Of course. Uh, eventually, well, particularly in those outer out. areas where he's yeah. now proposing to expand ULES into, that's exactly where people have cars. And yeah. just simply there's no other way to get around. Well, uh, his own walking and cycling commissioner in March tweeted out a little graphic from TfL which showed that broken down by um, sort of 10 income mm. bands from poorest to richest and car ownership, in outer London, even the poorest 10% are more likely to own a car than the wealthiest 10% in inner London. Right. I mean, this is the reality of, it's just a mayor who doesn't understand oh, the half wealthy, of his own city. Uh, t- 10% inside inner London, they're all spending three grand on a bike. You know, <laughs> and I see more and more of these uh, ridiculous parents with their kids in sort of, you know, tandem with them, either in a box, which is incredibly dangerous, it seems to me, on the, on the, on the main highway, uh, or with them sitting on a sort of tandem style, you know, two and three seater bike. And those things aren't, don't come cheap, you know, but they're all virtue signalling the way through the day, saying, look at me, I'm green, I'm saving the planet. Well, you're not, actually. And he also keeps quoting... Those he? things are not three grand, by the way. You're not going to get change from ten grand for one of those, those I mean, cargo bikes. that's incredible. And, I mean, you know, why would you want to buy one of those? I just don't get it. But then he keeps using this, this number, 4,000 people die every year from air pollution, which is simply not true. No. So what he does there, he... So they measure... Um, each person may have a short 
uh, so maybe you would have died in the afternoon and instead you die at breakfast. Yeah. They add up all of those, all of that time, right. multiply it by the number of people and say this equates to mm. this many lives. Yeah, but so, it's so, not so, a fact and it's no, not scientific. No, it's just a, it's, it's a way of making it sound like there's a sort of pandemic of pollution. There's yes. thousands of people every year dropping dead. And right. actually that isn't what's going on. And, th- and they never look at the other side of the ledger, which is if you make it impossible for people in outer London to travel around or if you have to get the bus instead of a car and it takes three times longer, you can't get to work. Mm. So now you how are you meant to buy now your air-sourced heat pump to heat your house, right. which costs 10 grand, yeah. if you've just lost your job because you can't drive to work anymore? Exactly right. And you can't park anymore, and you have to pay in congestion charge. I mean, to drive a car in, in this city now is a very expensive thing to have to do. And most people, I will say, drive because they have to. Because it's too expensive to do it as a sort of whim. And if you, and if you can get away with travelling another way, that's fine. But if you really wanted to address you know, bad air and pollution... He might take a look at what's going on in the underground, where there's an awful lot of particulates floating around. Yes. And people really can probably get quite ill. Well, there was a, there was a report, wasn't there, a couple of years ago from King's, where they looked at air quality in the tube, and they found two things. One, it'd be a surprise to no one, really, mm. that the air quality in the tube is, is far worse than the air quality at the roadside above right. ground, even in central London, where it's yeah. worse than Which it is in outer London. Which you would expect, to be fair, wouldn't you? Well, you would. Well, except what they also found was that... Um, Around the world, they looked at other tube um, tube networks. So they looked at Beijing, LA, New York, Seoul, mm. um, uh, Barcelona, Sydney. They were all better than London. Right. So if Sadiq cares as much about air quality as he says he does, why isn't he doing something about that? But I, mean, I the suppose he's not... he'll say because that's because it's a lot older than any of the other ones, is it? Well, that might be what he would say. What I would say is that would involve him actually doing something rather than just bringing in a new charge. Yes, indeed. I mean, the other thing is, don't encourage him to start disrupting any more travel around Britain. I mean, it's hard enough to get around London. Once they shut the underground because they're, you know, revising it, uh, we'll never be able to get anywhere. So tell us a bit about your your sort of your new crusade with, uh, with Sadiq Khan, because a lot of people say to me, how is it that he keeps getting elected? You know, he's been here eight years, as you say. He's running again. A lot of people are absolutely praying, crossing fingers and toes and everything that they can cross, that he doesn't win. Yes. I think... I think what it's about for us, a Conservative Party, is to have a candidate who is... Well, they've got two things to do, really. The first thing is to remind people of all of these failures that the mayor has. As Mm. I say, ULEZ is a mixed blessing. So, you know, politically speaking, it's a disaster for the city. Mm. Um, It's a mixed blessing, I suppose, politically, because it demonstrates how out of touch he is. But it it sort of dominates the conversation so much that all the other stuff gets forgotten. So I think our mayoral candidate needs to remind people of all of that. And as the assembly group, we will continue to remind people of that and continue to go digging and challenging him. I think the other part is to demonstrate that it is actually possible to have a mayor of a city who is interested in doing a good job and making the city better for the people who live in it mm. or who visit it or who work in it, yes. which which is about, you know, item number 10 in Sadiq Khan's Because this crusade. new, if, if it is expanded, well, this new zone that he's going to, wishing to create is going to be even more difficult to, to, to sort of navigate, if you like, by people who are not used to it. You know, yeah. I've had messages from people lately who said they came into London, didn't know there was a congestion charge. You know, they see a big C, they don't necessarily know what that is. There used to be signs up that told you how to pay it which now don't exist. And so he said he got home, and next thing that happened, he got a, a fine for 90 quid. You know, and so if you're in this new area where you're liable to be possibly going in and out of a ULEZ zone, you could be paying more than once for a fine. I, th- I think the problem, particularly for people like Sadiq Khan, who never seem to leave inner London or understand anything that goes on in outer London, I think the problem is the boundary between the edge of outer London 
which is you know where the edge of my constituency is of Croydon yeah. and Sutton, that boundary between there and the places just over the boundary into Surrey, into Kent, or into Hampshire mm. or Essex, it's a completely open border. You know, there's not a big fence and conning towers and you know people checking your passports as you come in and out. Right. People move in and out of that border constantly. It's just the place up the road. Yeah. You know, the next town over just right. happens to be in London. Um, and there's going to be a lot of confusion. I think particularly for people who are not in or anywhere near London, yeah. who just have no idea. They you know they drive over. They're going to visit friends or family who live in Croydon yes. or Barnet or somewhere and suddenly well, they people will now be asking the question won't they are you in the zone yeah and I mean I bet you there'll be people in some streets who they might not be but the street over there is and so if you come that way you'll yeah. have to pay to come and see them well people will ask are you in the zone if they know about the zone but the point is if you live in I don't know Winchester yeah. you're probably not every day of the week checking what no. the mayor of London's up to. We no. have to, we, unfortunately, yeah, it's our professional yeah. requirement. But, yeah. but they, they just people just aren't aware that mm. it's happening. And I think there's a lot of people going to get stung with 180 quid Yeah, fine. I remember years ago when I lived in Scotland, actually, funnily enough, and I came down to London in a car for the first time in a while, and I was staying at the, the, the Metropolitan Hotel at the bottom of Park Lane. And um, I saw that there was a big sea on the road as I came down Park Lane. I don't know if it's still the case, that you enter the congestion zone by driving, by making a left turn, basically. That used to be the boundary, yeah. As if you go to the Hilton, right? Yeah. And so I very carefully parked the car on this side of the the boundary and said to the guy, you know, can you park my car for me? Because it was valet parking. And, of course, the next thing I see is him reversing the car back and driving straight through the sea. And I was like, (laughs) no, you put me in the congestion zone. I thought you were going to park it somewhere else, you know. And even I, who relative, was relatively knowledgeable about these things, yeah. you know, that, that was not what I wanted him to do. But instead, I, part, I think I had to park there for three days. So there was three days worth of congestion charge. No, I, th- I think what, what's actually more worrying is, so right now what Sadiq Khan is, his, his sort of mitigating factor is two things. One, the poorest Londoners don't own cars, which of course is not true. And secondly, it's only people with the oldest cars, and he mm. argues about how many that is. Right. Somewhere around a quarter or a third probably of cars, which is a lot and generally not wealthy people with old cars. Yeah. But the next phase, once he's got this in, the next phase, particularly if he's re-elected, the next phase is going to be everybody, every car, every mile you drive on every mm. road in London, you will effectively you'll have a taxi meter in your yeah, own car right. and every time you move it, you'll be paying Sadiq Khan. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, just a bit of breaking news for us, Neil. Uh, ambulance workers in the South East will strike on Tuesday as Unite escalates its industrial action in a long-running dispute over pay. Again, um, Sadiq Khan on strikers doesn't seem to be very keen to ever say anything nasty or bad about them. Well, what's interesting about strikes, this is, this is where you see the starkest difference between what he says and what he does. So whenever it's somebody else in charge of something where they're striking, including yeah. when he was running for mayor back in 2016, mm. he said, well, it's a failure, firstly, if there's a strike. And secondly, whoever, whether it's the mayor or the prime minister or whoever he thinks, should be getting around the table, talking to those people and sorting it out. Mm. What does he do now he's mayor? Well, firstly, vastly more strikes than there ever were under any previous mayor, even Ken. Yes. Um, and number two, he never talks to them. We ask, we've challenged him in mayor's questions. Right. When are you meeting them? And he's suddenly he's got 101 reasons why he doesn't need to meet them. It's somebody else's job. Yeah, that seems to be his speciality. Well, listen, good to see you. Thank you very much for popping in. Neil Garrett, um, assembly member over at the uh, uh, City Hall, which has moved, hasn't he? He's moved. That's what Susan tells us. He's moved it back yet. He, he's banished us to Docklands, Mike, yeah. out in Zone 3. So what's going to happen to that building that sits by Tower Bridge? It's currently being gutted. I walked past it the other day. It's uh. being gutted. There's a demo firm in there uh, ripping it all really? out. I imagine it's going to be, I don't know, refitted as but offices. But it's a Norman or? Foster-inspired place, right? Purpose-built. Purpose-built yeah. for, for, for the London Assembly, and he's not using it. No, he's moved us to a, to a shed. Unbelievable. By, by City It's Airport. unbelievable, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. Anyway, listen, well, let's see what we can do to get rid of him. Um, I don't mind uh, ganging up.
Um, I'm sure you'd enjoy it. Uh, let's see what we can do. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on. Kenny from Edinburgh says, Hi Mike, Sadiq Khan is a perfect example of what happens when an arrogant egotist who doesn't have any natural talent for anything gets some power. The man uh, is the most ignorant politician in the world. Donald Trump is positively humble compared to Sadiq Khan. Well, Sadiq Khan certainly seems to be pretty full of it, uh, doesn't he? He seems to be pretty full of himself and full of his own importance. And this is a man uh, who refuses, really, to brook any kind of criticism. Anybody, as you've seen from various different um, mayor's questions, uh, anybody who asks a question very rarely gets an answer. And if they do get an answer, it's usually something sort of supercilious and really rather sort of, shall we say, disinterested. He does not believe that he's doing anything wrong. He does not believe, despite the fact that here we are living in uh, a country and a city uh, where three young men were stabbed to death over the weekend, uh, where two dogs were shot dead on the streets of this city uh, because they were dangerous dogs and they were owned by a man who they later tasered. You know, crime is out of control, not just in this city, but around the country. And Sadiq Khan has to take his share of the blame for that, surely to heavens. Let's talk to Alp Mehmet, who's chairman of Migration Watch, because the net migration figures for the whole of 2022 will be published later on this month, around about the 25th of May. And we found that uh, the year before, it was 504,000. And Robert Colville, amongst others, highlighted this number to us a week and a half or so ago when he wrote about it in the Sunday Times. And quite frankly, as he said, this is a far more worrying number than the numbers coming in currently on the small boats because it's a much bigger number. And the worry now is that the number for 2022 will be even higher. Let's find out from Alp uh, what he knows. Alp, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you, Mike. Now, it's true to say, isn't it, that a lot of the people who are on this list are counted as students. But one of the things that I think people will be surprised about is that students who come here to study are allowed to bring family members with them as well. They are indeed. Uh, but students come, how long are they here for? Five, six, seven, eight years? Right. We also know from home office figures that those who arrive here as students, something like a fifth of them stay on indefinitely. Mm. So it's not really a matter of they come temporarily and leave. It's much more than that. Um, can I just go back a little bit to you, you, you said something like 750,000 um, came last year. It's actually considerably more than that who, who came, Mike. The uh, likely net migration figure, when you take away those who have left, is going to be, we reckon, considerably more than half a million, mm. which it was to the year to June, when you look at the whole of 2022. It could be really over 600,000, 700,000. We don't know precisely, and we, we have to make that clear. But what I am very confident of is that it will be significantly more than half a million. Yes, and that's an awfully large number. I mean, how good will the breakdown be out when we finally do see it? Will we get a breakdown of who is a student, who is a family member of a student, you know, who has come here to work and which kind of visa they've been given? We, we will get that, um, but the fact is that when you look at the overall figures, it isn't just those who are coming in uh, as family members, coming in as students, coming in to work. And that is one of the, the major factors. It, you'll remember that in 2019, 
uh, the politicians who were then looking for our vote from the Conservative Party, namely uh, Boris Johnson, was saying that there will be control. And not only will there be control, but there will be reduced immigration. Mm. We said at the time that that was absolutely not the case. The likelihood was that it would be increasing in numbers. Net migration would go up. It wouldn't reduce. And that's precisely what's happened. Yeah. What, what really concerns me, Mark, if I, if I, if I can just elaborate yeah, a little please do. Why, why I'm concerned, is if you think back to the spring uh, budget, uh, the OBR said that uh, migration, net migration, was settled at around 245,000. Right. Well, I think that's really understating it by a significant amount. Totally. 245,000 in itself is high, mm. but it's much more likely that if we do settle down to a, a, a one one sort of rough figure, it will be more like a third of a million or 350,000. Yeah. Now, if you have net migration of 350,000, what that means is that over the next 20 years or so, you're looking at a population increase of 9 million people. Mm. That's because of immigration of migrants and the children of migrants yeah. the the obr is looking at something much lower than that and a population increase over the next 20 years of about 5 million yeah. that's wrong and and it's it understates it by about half and that in itself or indeed almost 100% um, that is significant that is something that we should all be worried about. Right. No, Nine million huge. people in 20 years is huge. It is huge. And also, um, in the piece that I read uh, with these figures in them, the suggestion was that the number of houses being built currently is around about 140,000 a year. So there's no room for them, physically no room. There's no houses for them to live in. So, you know, that's going to cause more mayhem in the housing market uh, and if we are going to be seeing this number of people coming in, then surely the government has to accommodate them somewhere. Well, absolutely. Housing, schools, the NHS, your local GP, the people on the road, it has such an impact. And it's, I know that if you look at a particular community, if they don't have thousands of young men descending on them, being plonked in their midst... Um, they don't necessarily become aware of the fact that there is this level of immigration. But the point is that even if immigrants uh, who have crossed the channel are suddenly placed in, in accommodation near uh, people in the north, west in the northeast, it's a great deal more than that number of people that we're really looking at. It's mm. not just those who are crossing the channel. And that in itself is an area where, um, which prompts me to, to say that the numbers for the whole of 2022 will be a lot mm. higher. Because the figures to the end of June, which would have included those crossing the channel, there was only about 12,000 
came in up until that point. Mm. If you look at the second half of uh, 2022, it was something like 30,000 yeah. who came. So that's the sort of um, input into the overall figure, plus the fact that fewer and fewer people are leaving. And that's how you get net migration, because those coming in are tending to come from the poorer countries, yeah. from Nigeria, from uh, Zimbabwe, from, from India, where uh, they don't, having arrived, they don't necessarily leave. So you're looking at significant numbers being added to the population who are not likely ever to leave. Yes. That is the sort of likely, thing they've got to plan for. And who are also more than likely to have more children or who are more than likely to have more family members join them. I mean, one of the arguments we hear all the time from um, the sort of lefty lawyer types is that many of those coming on small boats are coming here because they've got relatives here. And some of them are here because they haven't left after having come here legally when they should have. So it's a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the only thing that happens is the population rises. It never goes down. It, it does. And, and it's population increase is, is rather complex. Um, and I'm very fortunate to have uh, Emeritus Professor of Demography, David Coleman. Um, he's my main advisor on right. population. And what he makes clear is that, you know, you can't just look at, uh, you, you make the point about those coming here um, having the tendency to have more children. Well, uh, population increase, and when you come to calculating uh, how much population is going to increase by, that um, you, you uh, have to take account of, of the fact that uh, children... Um, who either join or are born here, that is what makes up the overall number, not just those who are coming in, but those who are being added to the population because essentially people are arriving from overseas. The majority of them are coming for a better life. If you're coming from Zimbabwe, frankly, you're coming here not because you're really looking to uh, get away from somewhere uh, where you're being persecuted. You're coming here because you want a job, you want an education, mm. and you want a, a way of life that allows you to really exist in a, a much better uh, uh, environment than you would if you were in your own country. And that applies to any number of countries in in Africa, where more and more people are making their way from. And, yes. and that, I'm afraid, is something that the OBR, when it says, oh, this is a good thing, it's growing the economy. Well, yes, it grows the economy. But what it does is also become a cost, an additional cost on, on our economy, because you've got to provide housing, you've got to provide mm. schooling, you've got to provide health needs of one form or another. And that really is something that politicians tend to overlook. Yes. The needs that a growing population brings with it.
Well, that's exactly the thing. Well, now, I'm sure we'll be talking about this plenty between now and the 25th of May. Thank you very much for joining us. Net migration figures for the whole of 2022 to be published on the 25th of May. So mark that down uh, as an important date in your diary. And as Alp Mehmet, the chairman of Migration Watch, says there, you know, there could be as many as 9 million people more living in this country uh, inside of that sort of 10-year period. And that's an awful lot of people. And it's one thing to say people are allowed to come here because they want a better life. Well, that's fine. But they can't be coming here to get a better life if that involves making everybody else's life worse. Do you see what I'm saying? This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.